This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and the Big Change Program with Josh Lajani. This podcast is part of my mission to empower you to live a healthy and joyful life. Two quick items of business before today's interview. First, you still have till the end of March, another couple of months to download the Beat the Bully Report. If you have that voice in your head saying, yeah, you'll never change, you've read all the books, you've seen the movies, you've gone to the immersions and you're still eating crap and you're still sitting on the couch, what kind of loser are you? You might as well just give up. If you've got that voice in your head, I call it the bully. And for me, the bully was the most destructive voice, much more destructive than the one saying, hey, come on, that'll taste good, or hey, come on, let's do this or that. The one that whenever I got excited would niggle into my brain and say, you don't have this. This is not for you. That was the voice that would really throw me for a loop. I called him the bully. And I've learned how to beat the bully. And you can too. And you can find out more and get a free download of the entire report at plantyourself.com slash bully. Second item of business, a past guest on this podcast is Olivia Kelly, who is the CEO and founder of Wellstart Health. Olivia is looking for a group of people to put through a program she has just got ready to go. Here's Olivia to tell you all about it. What's up, all you awesome Plant Yourself podcast listeners? I'm Olivia, founder and CEO of Wellstart Health, www.wellstarthealth.com. We are a chronic disease reversal program that you can do online. You see a doctor and a dietitian three times during the program. You have a health coach whom you text with daily. You have online group support and so many other resources to help you reverse your type 2 diabetes or heart disease or hypertension, high cholesterol. If you are on medication for one of those conditions, please contact us. We are looking to run a new program. We would love to have you in it and get your feedback on it. And all you need to do is cover your own labs, which is going to cost approximately $100. The rest of it, we take care of. If you're interested, email me, olivia at wellstarthealth.com, or just visit us at wellstarthealth.com and click on the contact form. Thanks. All right. So that's a great opportunity for you or anyone you know who's got one of those conditions and wants to participate in a really, really smart program that holds your hand and really can be life transforming. All right. On to today's show. I want to make this brief because let's get right to it. My guest is Emerson Wickwire, PhD. He's a sleep specialist, a sleep disorders specialist. But that is misleading because what he really cares about is not the problems we have with sleep, but how to get good sleep, how to have what he calls positive sleep, sleep that is not only getting rid of our deficits of tiredness, but actually can help us be more productive, to be happier, to be more engaged in life. And what I wanted to talk to him about was the nuts and bolts of how to get a good night's sleep. Because so many of the people that I coach around health and diet and exercise and lifestyle, what gets them is when they're tired, then their willpower is low, they're vulnerable. And so we almost always in coaching sessions and in classes, look at their sleep patterns. Are they going to bed at a reasonable time? Are they getting enough sleep? Are they waking up in the middle of the night? Is their bedroom set up? All those things. And so rather than me 
teaching it secondhand. I wanted Emerson to come on and share his wisdom with us today. So without further ado, Emerson Wickwire, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with, uh, I said, welcome back. You've been on the podcast before, but for people who haven't heard that one, who are you and what do you do? I am a sleep disorder specialist. I'm a psychologist by training, but really work in the field of sleep medicine. Uh, My area of expertise is the non-drug treatment of sleep disorders, broadly speaking, and uh, Howie will obviously break that down and talk about what that means and how your listeners can leverage the power of a good night's sleep to improve the quality of their lives. I serve on the faculty at the School of Medicine at the University of Maryland and have uh, trained at Johns Hopkins, and I was on the faculty there previously, uh, built and directed a comprehensive community-based sleep medicine center, and this is a space that I've uh, worked deeply and broadly in for the past 13 or 14 years. Awesome. So the reason I wanted to talk with you is we've, you know, I've just started a second run of the big change program. And as people share their, their goals and their challenges, one thing that comes up again and again, and you know, the big change program doesn't really focus on sleep per se. It focuses on lifestyle, diet, exercise, um, you know, the ability to withstand temptations and undergo discomforts in part of your training. But the, mid, the, the missing piece for a lot of people seems to be sleep. Like, you know, I'm talking to someone and they're having trouble getting up and exercising in the morning. Why? Because they're not getting to bed on time or they're getting to bed on time and they can't stay asleep or they, can't, they get into bed and they can't fall asleep. And, and I'm, you know, I just wanted to reach out to you to, to come up with some content just to help all these people for whom sleep is like a hidden problem. I think it's a really important conversation to have. Interestingly enough, uh, you mentioned being too tired in the mornings to exercise uh, and being too uh, exhausted in the evenings to resist temptation. And absolutely, those are two very common challenges associated with not sleeping well. Those are particularly near to my heart. I stumbled into sleep medicine. I was training in graduate school to be a sports psychologist and uh, ended up in sleep completely by accident. Uh, I did a clinical rotation uh, somewhat reluctantly, I might add, in an insomnia center, (laughs) in a comprehensive sleep medicine center. I was in Memphis, Tennessee at the time, and it took all of about 30 minutes to realize that even though I had been involved in athletics my entire life, and I was uh, a collegiate wrestler, and I had coached high school wrestling and knew all about diet and exercise uh, and and mindset, if you will, within 30 minutes, I realized that sleep was the missing link that really could uh, either undermine or dramatically enhance uh, athletic performance. And uh, now, of course, uh, I focus on on quality of life and, and human performance more broadly. Excellent. So let's maybe start with like what what is a good night's sleep or a good you know life of sleep what are what are the ideal sleep patterns? How much should we be sleeping? you know what's a good schedule and what are, what are natural human variations because sleep I found like people have more trouble sort of talking about sleep openly than even like money or sex is there some there's something you know sort of really secretive about it so can you you know pull back the curtain and tell us like what what's normal 
<laughs> right. It's funny. Sleep is deeply personal, isn't it? And uh, in some ways, this even parallels the evolutionary value of sleep. Uh, the fact that we still feel vulnerable vulnerable about sleep. If you think from an evolutionary perspective, what could the value of this uh, innate, uh, non-negotiable biologic process be? After all, we're vulnerable uh, for seven or eight or nine hours per night uh, when we can't defend ourselves from threats in the environment. So there is this... Um, vulnerability associated with sleep and, and talking about sleep. There's even a sense of shame about sleep. Uh, when people are having trouble sleeping, they're reluctant to seek help. They don't know that help is available. Um, and then, of course, there's a lack of expert help um, uh, in most communities in, in the country. So let's start by talking about what is sleep. At uh, a physiologic level, sleep is defined by the electrical activity in our brains. So using technologies called electroencephalograms or EEGs, which is how we measure brain activity, electrical activity in the brain. So sleep is defined by the electrical frequencies uh, in our brain. And generally what happens is that during sleep, the electrical activity in our brain slows down multiple uh, physical functions slow down, our heart rate slows, our respiratory rate slows, we consume uh, less oxygen. So uh, we're lying down uh, most often during sleep, although I've seen people uh, fall asleep standing up when they're substantially uh, sleep deprived. Uh, sometimes people sleep walk, of course, but in general, we're lying down. Our muscles are are in a relaxed state. And so when we talk about sleep, we're talking about this physiologic process. I want to put out the idea, and maybe we'll touch base on this today, it, it certainly warrants um, a, a much longer discussion about the distinctions and overlap between sleep and rest. And uh, for me, I define those differences that sleep is a physiologic, biologic process involving uh, primarily changes in brain activity, which lead to changes in other physio physiologic functions, which of course is related to, but not entirely the same as rest. We can be resting while we are awake. So rest is more of a psychological, even spiritual uh, phenomenon uh, as opposed to sleep. Now, with that overarching uh, understanding of what uh, what sleep is, we need sleep uh, on a daily basis. We have evolved uh, to be diurnal creatures, and uh, which means we're awake during the day and to sleep at night. The uh, National Sleep Foundation, as well as the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the Sleep Research Society, in 2015, published updated guidelines for recommended sleep duration in healthy adults. And in general, those ranges are between seven and nine hours. So if, um, uh, if, if, if one is uh, receiving less than seven to nine hours, in all likelihood, they are uh, suffering insufficient sleep. So I want to pause there. There's plenty more that we can talk about, but let me just check base and see if all that makes sense so far. And if you have any questions. Sure. So, the, yeah, the, I mean, the seven to nine hours, 
feels you know, like, like an answer. And it sounds like a lot more than most people I know get. So, well, that is, uh, in all likelihood, uh, true. And that's problematic for a number of reasons, which, which we'll talk about um, in one sec. One of the things, uh, Howie, that you, uh, when we were uh, chatting before the call, had mentioned was uh, about normal variations in sleep. And so uh, sometimes we see sensational headlines that not getting enough sleep is uh, going to cause me to die and we don't want to catastrophize. There is some individual variability uh, in these ranges. However, um, in almost every case, and one could, of course, argue that I see a select sample, I, I, uh, in addition to public health and educational programs like this, the majority of folks that I see are folks who have trouble sleeping. Uh, so that qualifier aside, uh, if you took the number of people uh, on the planet as a percentage, uh, for example, uh, who need five hours of sleep, and if you rounded that percentage to the nearest whole number, it would be zero. Hmm. In other words, uh, uh, people, uh, when, they, when, you, when surveys are conducted and they ask people about their intelligence or their physical attractiveness, 85% of the people say that they're above average. And of course, this is impossible. And it's very much the same way when we talk about how much sleep do I need. There is a red badge of courage, if you will, for being sleep deprived. There are lots of cultural myths that have led to this uh, misconception, and, and, and we can elaborate uh, on those. The reality is, if you are wondering if you are getting enough sleep, you almost certainly are not getting enough sleep. So, so when you say that, like what would cause the wondering, like what's, you know, I'm, I'm active during the day, but I get a little tired in the afternoon and I need to pick me up, you know, a piece of fruit or something to, to kind of power through the afternoon. Does that mean I'm sleep deprived or does it have to be, you know, falling asleep into my oatmeal in the morning like, what, how, how does somebody tell, just, you know, forgetting about the averages and the bell curves, for themselves personally? How can they self-diagnose sleep insufficiency? It, it's a great question. And part of what we need to understand is that humans are, and I'll, and I'll briefly summarize some of the key scientific research uh, around this very question, but humans are incredibly inaccurate estimators of their sleepiness and of their uh, sleep status, if you will. In the early 2000s, there were two studies, ironically published in the same year from two different research laboratories. And what these studies did is they sleep deprived or they restricted the sleep opportunity of individuals over consecutive days. So, uh, without getting into to, to the very subtle nuances of these studies, in general, what they did is they created three groups. One group is going to sleep four hours. One group is going to sleep six hours. One group is going to sleep eight hours. And then they tracked these folks over one to two weeks, depending on uh, which of these two studies that it was. And each day at the same time of day, these research participants completed a number of 
neurocognitive uh, tests. They were measured for objective sleepiness using uh, a specific kind of daytime sleep study. In other words, patients are asked to take a nap and we track how long it takes them to fall asleep, which gives us an objective measure of, of daytime sleepiness. And then the patients are also asked, these research participants are also asked, how sleepy do you feel? Okay. So uh, uh, again, we have three groups of slightly different total sleep times. So there is an acute change in sleep, and then we measure the chronic effects of this um, uh, sleep loss over uh, a, a week or two. And each day they are given an extensive battery of neurocognitive tests. And what you see over time is that patients' objective sleepiness diminishes. In other words, uh, the, the, the time that it takes them to fall asleep during the day gets lower and lower and lower. They get sleepier and sleepier and sleepier during the day with each consecutive day of sleep restriction. There is no change, however, over time in their self-reported sleep. So patients feel like these research participants, when you ask them how sleepy they were, they'd say, oh, I'm not sleepy at all. And then you'd ask them to take a nap and they'd fall asleep immediately. So subjectively, they could not tell that objectively they were getting sleepier and sleepier and sleepier. And we see this in, uh, uh, in ourselves. We see this in our, in our friends and in our colleagues and our clients and our, in our, in our patients. Uh, so the one, uh, the first thing that I want to say is people are very bad at estimating where they stand in terms of sleep. Now, uh, sleep impacts virtually every physiologic uh, and psychologic uh, cognitive emotional function um, in humans. So um, sometimes folks are uh, pathologically sleepy. If someone's falling asleep in their oatmeal, as you mentioned, that's, um, it doesn't take uh, a sleep disorder specialist to recognize that there's a problem. Much more common signs of sleep loss are things like having to work harder to get the same results, are things like irritability or um, uh, maybe uh, even uh, mild uh, depressed mood. And what I mean by that is lethargy or having less fun, being less motivated to whether it's go to the gym or whether it's uh, to go out on a date with my spouse or to uh, be with my children or my friends. Um, I have less uh, joie de vivre, uh, uh, if you will, um, uh, increasing uh, mental uh, mistakes, inability to uh, focus and be as productive. These are, for most folks, uh, the most common signs of, uh, uh, of not getting enough sleep or of not getting uh, high enough quality sleep. Uh, and I want to talk about sleep quality as well. Okay. Well, the, the list you just came up with sounds like the content of the self-help shelf at Barnes and Noble, right? So that we're, 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 you know, we're, we're trying to figure out all these ways, like how to, how to have a better relationship with your spouse, how to talk to your kids, how to be more productive and focused at work, how to be happier. And, you know, everyone's got their own take on this, but it's, it's, it sort of reminds me of like, you know, I, I can't get my smartphone to work. The calendar isn't working right. The, the messaging app isn't working. My water minder app isn't working. And the problem is the, the battery's dead. It, it, so sleep really does 
uh, impact uh, each of these areas. And that's not to say that if uh, we solve the sleep problem that uh, relational distress is going to go away. However, we can say, uh, and I will uh, say, uh, I will go out on a limb and say that if, um, uh, for example, uh, a couple experiencing relational distress is well-rested, they are going to be infinitely better able to navigate the waters of, uh, of, of working through those issues and of uh, experiencing happiness and positive connection. There's a neuroscientific literature on this uh, regarding the soothing effects of um, interpersonal uh, connection. And uh, again, the sleep-deprived brain um, doesn't function uh, properly. It doesn't function as well as the well-rested brain. So I could make a strong case uh, and a strong evidence-based case, not only uh, my, my expert opinion, uh, that sleep is central to each of those areas that you mentioned. Right. And it, and it feels like, you know, it's that whole uh, Abraham Lincoln quote about if I had to chop down a tree, I'd spend, a, you know, six hours and I had, I'd spend the first four sharpening the axe. It's sleep is the thing. It It's not... Uh, it's not directly causing us to, to, you know, be productive or get things done or, or have a great workout, but it's necessary. And, it, and without, without it, we can't do those other things. I, I think that's a, a wonderful way to describe it. I, I, uh, I use the Lincoln story myself uh, very frequently. There, there's another um, uh, anecdote that uh, that your listeners uh, might find helpful and i actually learned this story as a uh, as a as a teenage athlete from a coaching uh, mentor of mine and at the time uh, the context in which i understood it was diet which is obviously uh, uh, your area of expertise and the uh, importance and health benefits of a plant-based diet what this uh uh, Coach Peckham was his name. He loved cars, and I've never been, um, I'm not a, a car fanatic. I've never been a, a car fanatic, but he loved cars. And he had an old 1950s, I can't remember uh, uh, the exact year, but he had an old Mercedes. And he was talking about if you own this car that were worth a quarter of uh, a million dollars, uh, would you change the oil? would you run this car with uh, uh, high-octane or low-octane gas? Um, would you make sure that the car was well-maintained? And uh, the obvious answer is, well, absolutely I would. I would, <laughs> I would, uh, I would pamper that car. It's uh, incredibly valuable, and, and it means a great deal to me. And then, of course, he turned the tables and said, well, then why is it that you're eating that junk? And because, of course, your own body is far more valuable than, uh, than, than, the, uh, than the old car. And with sleep, it's just the same way. Um, why would we, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, burn our engines out, if you will, by revving at higher and higher um, uh, RPMs, uh, to stick with the, with the car metaphor, as opposed to making sure that, uh, that everything's uh, uh, tuned and properly fueled and ready to, ready to go. Gotcha. So let's spend maybe a minute on 
the science of the sleep drive because you know I I brought up the metaphor of the battery and from in previous conversations from you I understand that's that's kind of an insufficient metaphor that there's more going on than simply just recharging that our our level dips into the red and starts blinking and then we have to plug in right so just quickly like you know scare the hell out of us a little bit about what happens to our brains when we don't get enough sleep <laughs> Sure. Have you ever, uh, I've been so impressed in reading about your, your long distance running. Uh, have you uh, ever read stories about the cyclists who uh, uh, race coast to coast? Are you familiar with these race across America kind of rides? No. So uh, uh, I'm in Baltimore, as you know, uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, which is where the which is the capital, capital of Maryland and the, where the U.S. Naval Academy is, uh, is 30 or 40 minutes uh, away. It's a wonderful place to go and spend an afternoon uh, on the water. And it is also the destination place uh, uh, for, uh, I believe it's called the Ride Across America. But what cyclists do is they start uh, maybe Huntington Beach or one of the Southern California beaches, and they race uh uh one cyclist they each have a support van following them but they ride from los angeles to annapolis as fast as they can and if you read the stories of uh of these guys they uh uh, they fall asleep while cycling they hallucinate they dream um uh etc etc uh somewhere in colorado if i remember the stories right the reason that i'm uh, sharing that story is that the same thing will happen to us with insufficient sleep. Our, our, our brains um, uh, uh, need to be recharged. Now, um, let me talk about the science, which was your question, but let me also talk about one of the functions of sleep, okay? So sleep is governed by two interacting processes in the brain. The first of these is called the sleep homeostat or the sleep pressure or the sleep drive or sometimes process S. And this is just like hunger or thirst. It goes up over time. So the longer that I'm awake and the more calories that I burn, the more my body is going to need sleep. You can think of it as a linear function. And the slope of that line will be determined by caloric expenditure. So if I'm at home lying on the couch, uh, I'm not going to build up so much sleep drive, whereas if I'm out running uh, 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 ultramarathons uh, like you are, you're building up a great deal of sleep drive. That line will be much steeper. Uh, this is one reason why we typically, when folks are having trouble sleeping at night, recommend avoiding daytime naps because a nap, of course, um, uh, lowers my, my sleep drive, making it harder to sleep at night. Now, so on the one hand, we have the sleep drive, which is always increasing as long as we're awake. On the other hand, we have what's called the circadian rhythm uh, or the circadian clock. And this is an internal biologic rhythmic function that's uh, located in the suprachiasmatic nuclei, which sit right between your third eye, right where the optic nerves cross. And that's important because this is very light sensitive. Remember, we've evolved to be diurnal creatures. So on the one hand, the sleep drive is increasing while we're awake. On the other hand, the uh, alerting signal, uh, this circadian uh, system, if you will, functions on about a 24.2-hour cycle. So 
at the same time that our body's getting increasingly sleepy during the day, our circadian system is also uh, balancing that out by keeping us more and more awake. And then in the evening time, that circadian alerting signal begins to decrease. We begin to feel uh, the effects of our sleep drive, if you will. And then we fall asleep, the sleep drive resets, and the process deck, uh, starts over the next morning. Now, during sleep itself, one of the great unsolved mysteries is, well, really, why do we sleep? We know the myriad negative consequences of not getting enough sleep or not getting enough quality sleep or of having untreated sleep disorders and so forth. One of the functions that we um, have identified uh, in the past several years, uh, there was a landmark study published in 2013. Uh, and what this study found, it was in mice, is that during sleep, interstitial space increases. Uh, what that means is that um, it's during uh, sleep that uh, um, neurotoxins and uh, plaques and so forth are able to be removed from cells. Let me explain why that is important. Because neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, like uh, cr uh, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, encephalopathy uh, which CTE you've uh, read about uh, in terms of NFL players. These diseases are characterized by the inability to wash away these neurotoxins. So um, uh, sleep is not only, which we haven't talked about, I'm just going to put it out there, that sleep is when learning takes place. During sleep is when the synaptic ties in the brain are strengthened and solidified. Without sleep, we cannot learn. Uh, memories are uh, uh, encoded and consolidated during sleep. These are uh, well-documented neurophysiologic functions of sleep. So if uh, you'd ask me to, <laughs> to get the attention of of your readers uh, and, and listeners. And what I would suggest is that um, if you're not worried about uh, your brain health, uh, if you're not worried about uh, uh, things like um, uh, memory loss and dementias and Alzheimer's disease and uh, enabling the cells in your brain to flush away uh, the neurotoxins that can harm them, well, then now is probably a good time for you to drop off the podcast. <laughs> okay, so it it sounds like the you know the the, the long term negative downside is these disease states and the uh, the neurological diseases. And I don't know anyone who has a friend or relative or neighbor or coworker who has started developing some form of dementia who isn't terrified of becoming that person of, of losing themselves. So I think that's, that's pretty motivating by itself. But the idea that everything I learned today gets flushed down the toilet if I don't have a good night's sleep and I have to keep go doing it in like sort of a, a mental groundhog day where, where, where nothing accrues and I don't make progress in my life, that's, that's terrifying to me on a whole nother level. It's, it's, we've all had experiences, uh, especially those of us who have been uh, productive and successful, where we thought that we were getting more done by burning the candle at both ends or, or pulling an all-nighter, 
uh, uh, I'm assuming that everyone on the call uh, listening to this recording has had the experience of having to read during a prolonged period of work, having to read the same paragraph three times. <laughs> well, there's a reason for that, uh, because your brain is, is no longer functioning properly. Cool. So I, I, I think that uh, that's sufficient to get us galvanized. So now I'd like, to, I'd like to ask you about the different ways we can experience poor sleep or sleep problems. And so the, you know, the, the first one I hear about from people is they can't fall asleep or they, you know, they, they, they want to go to bed. And, and I guess these are, I want to say this, these are not like by choice. Like I know people who will stay up till two in the morning because they're, they, you know, they're just watching stuff or doing stuff and they, they know they shouldn't. Like I'm not talking about where a simple sort of lifestyle decision would make a change, but people who are honestly like don't know what to do. So someone goes to bed at, you know, let's say 11 every night and they're up until one and they're tossing and turning and they can't fall asleep. Um, but so what's, what's that about? Well, a couple thoughts. Um, the first is that uh, in the scenario that you described, it's actually very good news. From, uh, and what I mean by that is that from a behavioral perspective, we know very well uh, how to help folks fall asleep faster. That is uh, an addressable uh, problem. Now, if, and let's, let's take a step back and remember that uh, sleep, healthy sleep, is governed by two processes. There is the sleep drive, so we need to make sure that our bodies are, have a sufficient need for sleep. And then there is also the circadian rhythm. So we need to make sure that our bodies uh, uh, and minds, that, that the timing of our sleep is optimal. So in healthy sleep, those are the two functions that, that, um, that really regulate things. There's a third piece of the puzzle, which we haven't talked about yet, but it's often directly related to the inability to fall asleep and the inability to stay asleep. And the scientific buzzword for this, uh, uh, for this third factor is what we call physiologic hyperarousal. Mm. What physiologic hyperarousal means is, in a, in a, in a very, very simplified way, stress. And we can measure stress, uh, Howie, as you well know, in a dozen different ways in a research context. We can look at respiration weight rate. We can look at uh, oxygen consumption. We can look at pupil dilation. We can look at uh, galvanized skin response, which is the electrical, electrophysiologic activity in the skin. We can look at EEG frequency. We can look at functional magnetic resonance imaging. There are lots of different ways that we can uh, quantify stress. We can look at pro-inflammatory cytokines and things that uh, would never take place in a, in a clinical setting, but are used in uh, intensive research uh, assessments. When, uh, uh, when there is a sufficient or when there is an acute or chronic stressor of sufficient intensity or duration, this can override even optimal sleep drive and optimally timed uh, sleep. So think about, uh, for example, uh, it's, it's 11 uh, p.m. and 
that's your normal bedtime and you're waiting for your daughter to get home and this is her third date and she was uh, due home by 1045 and it's now five after 11 and there is a, a very loud bang on the door. So even though you were getting ready to lie down and almost felt drowsy uh, and your wife was uh, agreeing to, to wait up for your, for your, it sounds like someone is kicking in the front door. Well, that flight or fight uh, response kicks in and all of a sudden you are wide awake. That happens in a chronic way. So oftentimes when patients have trouble falling asleep, it's because, uh, because they haven't, sufficiently cooled off before bed. In other words, uh, their body's stress response system is still flying at 60,000 feet, uh, and the runway is, is not long enough for them to get in bed if they want to be asleep in 30 minutes. They might need uh, a two-hour or even a three-hour runway to move from 60,000 feet to 30,000 feet to 10,000 feet, so that when they do get in bed, they're that much... Uh, more relaxed, if you will, or less hyper aroused so that sleep can come that much more easily. Mm -hmm. And and when you say it's chronic, um, you're all, you're talking about so maybe like, so not cooling off from a day of chronic stress, which many of us experience, but I know a lot of people who add to their stress at night with the things they watch and read and think about. So you're, you're entirely correct. Um, uh, two uh, uh, two pieces, uh, two ways to address that question. First, to clarify, when I was referring to chronic physiologic hyperarousal, if we look at uh, chronic medical conditions uh, ranging from uh, anxiety or post-traumatic stress or depressed mood or chronic pain uh, or even chronic sleeplessness, and if we look at the brains and the um, uh, physiologic profile of patients experiencing these various conditions, it is, they're very, very similar. And we don't entirely know why these similar physiologic profiles manifest in different symptoms in different individuals. But what we do know is that this physiologic hyperarousal is a shared biologic component of these multiple conditions. So I'm not referring here to someone who uh, is um, uh, normally uh, very laid back and, and uh, not experiencing high levels of uh, physiologic uh, uh, stress, and then one day they, they have a stressful day. I'm talking about folks who have endured this, uh, let's say, trouble sleeping uh, for three or more months. We actually begin to see changes in their physiology so that it's no longer simply a nighttime phenomenon. We're actually seeing hyperarousal across the 24-hour day. So one of the things that we need to do is to begin to dampen down that hyperarousal, not only before bed, but even during, uh, during the day. And these are uh, certainly things like exercise or mindfulness or meditation or yoga or guided imagery. Or, um, these are all non-drug approaches to reducing that, that physiologic hyperarousal. So when I'm referring to chronic physiologic hyperarousal, that's what I'm talking about. Now, um, the, uh, uh, the second issue that you talked about in terms of 
habits, chronic habits that uh, people routinely log on to email at at 10.15 at night uh, or decide that that is a good time to uh, balance their checkbook or pay their bills. Those are, um, uh, uh, I like the word habits there. You use the word habits. And, and I think that those are ways that people routinely undermine their sleep. The metaphor that I use when talking with uh, patients or the, uh, or the public uh, about what the time before sleep should look like is dusk. Once the sun starts to set, the sun doesn't pop back up just to make sure that everything's okay. <laughs> the sun begins to set and follows a natural, uh, normal uh, descent. And we need to be thinking about adopting that approach ourselves. I love it. I love it. So it, I think, you know, we'll, we'll close this conversation out with just, you know, really sort of useful, practical tips for folks. But let's, let's talk a little bit before we get there about other types of poor sleep. So there's the person who can't fall asleep and sits awake for hours. What are, what are some other uh, patterns of poor sleep? Sure. The, the most common, uh, particularly in adults, uh, uh, in, insomnia symptom, which, which is what you're asking about. Insomnia is simply trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, or both associated with one uh, of, of a extensive list of possible daytime complaints. The most common symptom is uh, trouble staying asleep. Mm -hmm. And this manifests itself in generally one of two ways. Either folks wake up uh, several times during the night. When, when people tell me that they wake up once or twice during the night and they don't have much trouble falling back asleep, maybe they get up to use the bathroom, that's well within the normal range. But when folks are waking up three, four, five, six times during the night, we really need to uh, take a closer look. The other concern in terms of middle of the night awakening or what we call wake after sleep onset is that folks wake up and they can't fall back asleep. Uh, many patients uh, will describe, I can fall asleep. I get in bed at 11. I fall asleep uh, right away. But every morning at 2.30 or 3.30, I wake up and I can't fall back asleep for an hour. Those kinds of complaints are actually more common than, than extended uh, sleep onset latency. Now, the cause is very often uh, back to the physiologic uh, hyperarousal. And of course, there can be circadian components if folks have worked shifts in the past, for example. Um, one of the things that happens is I might be so sleep deprived or so sleepy at 11 p.m. that, uh, that my, my, my brain will override the physiologic hyperarousal. And then once I achieve some base level of sleep, whether that's uh, two or three or four hours, my brain, which was hyper-aroused the whole time, the seesaw sort of switches, and that hyper-arousal wakes me up. Now, once I'm awake, that's when we get, get, get back into the habit kinds of factors. Uh, uh, am I uh, ruminating? Am I uh, checking my smartphone or electronic device? Um, what is it that I'm doing to... Uh, sort of facilitate the return to sleep or to um, prevent the return to sleep during that middle of the night awakening. What do you mean by ruminating? I mean, 
actively using waking parts of your brain. Now, ruminating, as you know, involves worrying or uh, uh, chewing over uh, uh, different issues. Most often, uh, these have to do with uh, one of three things. Uh, what did I say yesterday? What did Tom mean? I wish I had said this. In other words, I'm rehashing what happened yesterday. Or it might involve uh, some anticipatory uh, insomnia or anticipatory anxiety about what might take place tomorrow. So thinking about yesterday, uh, planning for tomorrow, or then thinking about other uh, major life stressors, uh, health, family, uh, finances are the most are, are the most common. What we want to do, rather than engage in waking cognitive function during the night, is again think about the sun. The sun is offline. We want to keep the um, conscious centers of the brain offline. And what happens with practice is that even when the brain starts to wake up during the night with practice, we can choose to redirect towards sleep. Uh, one of the habits that we have developed is choosing to uh, uh, sort of reach right back up into wakefulness. Yeah. When I hear that, you know, I think about, you know, don't think of a pink elephant in a tutu. <laughs> right. So my, my brain doesn't feel like it's it's going to you know be led anywhere. So <laughs> it's a fair question. Uh, it's a fair question. What I would encourage you to do is what I encourage my patients to do, and that is uh, to try it to suspend your disbelief. And if you find yourself uh, uh, awakening in the middle of the night, to practice choosing to. Uh, return down into sleep rather than follow the well-worn path right up into wakefulness. So what, what does that look like? Like what, what is the, what, what are the instructions for that? It involves increasing your awareness about your state of consciousness so that I can recognize I'm beginning to wake up now. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let go and back into sleep. So it has to do with heightened awareness of my own conscious state. And that's something that people can practice, I assume, just when, just at that moment? Because it's, it, it, you know, or can you practice it at other moments to strengthen your your ability to call on that in, in, the, in the moment? I, that, that's a great question. And, and this is, these are high-level sleep skills, if you will. These aren't the low-hanging fruit that, uh, that are going to um, be easiest for most. This isn't the starting point. There are, there are okay, almost always mul right, multiple uh, low-hanging uh, uh, fruits to really improve uh, folks' sleep experience. Um, that being said, how do you practice uh, focusing? Uh, if you want to create, not you, uh, uh, Howie, write a great deal. And uh, you have a writing environment that is dedicated for writing, and it has only certain kinds of environmental cues that stimulate your creativity and productivity. And 
uh, I imagine that you turn off your email and turn off your cell phone when you're writing. Well, that is a focused waking experience. And I imagine that with practice, when you find yourself thinking about the fact that you need to buy a new water filter for your refrigerator, if it's during a dedicated writing time, you redirect away from thinking about the home repairs or the repairman who's going to be there at four or whatever it might be. And you have over time gotten much better at redirecting yourself to stay focused on the task at hand. Now I'm drawing, I'm making a great number of assumptions, but uh, am I close? Well, no, I don't have a water filter on my fridge. <laughs> yes, fair enough. So so I, we can I, do I, I totally, I totally didn't follow the rest of that because, you know, just no. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I get that. And I mean, what I do, though, is I don't here's here's where I'm getting a little bit stuck. And maybe maybe we should move on because I do want to focus on the low hanging fruit. But, but what's sticking me a little bit is when I'm writing and I think about X that I, that is unrelated, I, I don't not think about X. I just go back to Y, the thing I'm writing about. So when, I, but when, exactly. I'm, when I'm in the Ex- middle of sleep, I, I'm having trouble figuring out, like, what's the Y? Because it, it feels like it's more of moving towards an absence of thought than a different thought. So uh, that is a wonderful question uh, and a wonderful sort of uh, uh, reframing. Uh, I would like uh, you and listeners to think of uh, uh, sleep as uh, almost as a place uh, that that it takes place in uh, space and time, but that um, that you are. It's it's not that I'm I'm only avoiding conscious thought. It's that I am returning voluntarily and through my own volitional control to the place of sleep. Hmm. Oh, that feels nicer. When you say it's a place, I imagine like fluffiness and warmth and ease. That's exactly right. And safety and soothing and comfort. Beautiful. Okay, so we've got can't fall asleep, can't stay asleep. Are there other, are there other really common ones that, uh, that we should talk about before we go into the fix? I think that it's worth mentioning the timing of sleep. Um, uh, there is, uh, remember, let's step back. We have three factors, two factors influencing sleep in uh, uh, influencing, let's say, healthy sleep. And then a third factor, physiologic hyperarousal that can screw things up. Now, on today's, in today, and I'm happy to answer questions, of course, but we're not going to get into uh, organic sleep disorders like obstructive sleep apnea and restless leg syndrome and narcolepsy, et cetera, et cetera. Really, we're talking about um, uh, healthy sleep and its most common uh, variations without major medical sleep disorders. In that domain, the timing of sleep and what are called circadian rhythm problems are also worth mentioning. I mentioned shift work uh, sleep disorder uh, earlier. Uh, circadian rhythm disorder develops when essentially my body's sleep-wake schedule is out of sync with my uh, earthly demands, with my worldly demands. So uh, anyone who's had a 
teenager knows that teenagers would prefer to go to bed, many teenagers would prefer to go to bed at 4 a.m. and wake up at noon. We call this a delayed sleep phase syndrome because the bedtime is delayed later in the day. The problem for teenagers, of course, is that they have to be at school at 7.50 or whichever time their, their day starts. Older adults, in part because of changes in circadian rhythmicity over the lifespan, uh, older adults oftentimes want to go to bed at, uh, at 8.30 or 9 o'clock, and then they wake up at 3 or 3.30 in the morning and wonder why they can't sleep anymore. We call this a, an advanced sleep phase because the bedtime advances earlier in the day. So uh, when we talk about uh, sleep and sleep duration and, uh, and trouble falling asleep and trouble staying asleep, we also want to be mindful of uh, the timing of sleep and wakefulness. Uh, circadian rhythmicity, each of us uh, has a, an innate uh, predisposition uh, towards morningness or eveningness. Uh, about 90% of adults are intermediate types, which means roughly let's say 11 to 7 is about your biologic schedule. 5% of adults uh, are uh, evening uh, types, which means that their peak productivity is later. And 5% of adults are morning types, which means that their peak productivity uh, is, is earlier. So, so that is one other piece of the puzzle. Hmm. But uh, this, this is probably a, a, a tangent, certainly a tangent. I mean, but uh, it occurs to me that when you start out by talking about you know the vulnerability we feel around sleep because we're unable to respond to to environmental threats, it seems like a pretty sweet system that we have. You know, if we live in our tribe, that someone's always awake. I'd never thought of that, uh, 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 which is a benefit uh, to me of. Um, uh, uh, of this call. Uh, I've, I've never thought of that. I think that it's, um, uh, I, I would think that the number of, uh, folks who are evening types, in other words, who are naturally going to be night owls to be up to protect the tribe would be insufficient to actually protect the tribe. But of course it would depend on the size of the tribe. Right. Or, but you know, they could sound an alarm. It, I, if there were enough of them, that's exactly true. Mm -hmm. um, but remember, it's only 5%. So if we have uh, uh, a, a tribe of 100 people, it's roughly uh, uh, five individuals are going to be phase delayed and uh, or evening types. And it's unlikely that they will be evening types such that they are totally inverted and awake all night. Gotcha. No, that's, why, that's why we need the adolescents. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Put them to work. <laughs> All right, and, and I guess the, the 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 last thing that comes to my mind in terms of uh, of sleep problems is someone who sleeps all night, doesn't remember waking up, and may not wake up. But um, you know, in the morning they get up and they're still tired, like they didn't go to sleep, or like they got run over by a freight train. In situations uh, like that, uh, we generally want to look at three things. First, we want to look at uh, uh, sleep uh, quantity. Are they, how much sleep are they getting uh, uh, and on how regular a schedule? Uh, 
So is their sleep schedule consistent or do they only get five hours during the week and then they try and make up for it on the weekends? Uh, questions like those. The second thing that we want to look at is sleep quality. Now, I just uh, served as a panelist on a uh, national working group with the National Sleep Foundation called the Sleep Quality Consensus Panel to begin to define what sleep quality is. And the takeaway from that working group is that it is very, very difficult to define sleep uh, quality. There's consensus around things like falling asleep and staying asleep and what thresholds are for poor sleep quality. But beyond that, in terms of what we call sleep architecture, specific sleep stages, deep sleep, light sleep, uh, many of your listeners will have, will have heard of these things and are very interested because their, their Fitbit or other wearable device gives them all of this data. It's very, very unclear what those really mean. And in fact, in a comprehensive literature review uh, and expert uh, uh, consensus review, there was no consensus reached on the majority of those much more physiologic um, uh, sleep-related variables. So what that means practically is if folks are obtaining adequate uh, sleep and are unaware of trouble falling asleep and trouble staying asleep, let's say that this is someone who sleeps eight and a half hours a day, but they still feel like they've been hit by a bus, we want to uh, look at other possible sleep disorders. Uh, for example, obstructive sleep apnea or periodic limb movement disorder. In other words, might there be a medical condition that's explaining this non-restorative sleep? The reason that it's so important to evaluate that is if there is a medical condition, it needs to be treated. If there's not a medical condition, then we're going to look at other known antecedents of uh, fatigue. For example, uh, uh, chronic stress. One of the questions that I ask all of my new patients is what do you like to do for fun? And I'm fairly certain, I, I, I never published this research, uh, but when I was a, a fellow uh, at, at, uh, at, at Hopkins, this was about 10 years ago, I used to count. And the uh, uh, response time to answer that question, uh, uh, I would um, be willing to venture is a reliable indicator of uh, undiagnosed depressed mood. So when you ask folks what they like to do for fun and they can't tell you, red flag. Same thing when we ask folks, well, when was the last time that you went on vacation? There are reasons uh, uh, why we feel run down <laughs> when, when we're not getting uh, enough rest and rejuvenation. Mm. Great. So let's, let's, uh, let's shift into the, the money shot of, of this call and, and, and go to that low-hanging fruit. So I know you, you you talk a lot about you know, the lifestyle habits and environment. So in in terms of someone who's who's having one of these problems, let's and let's let's say it's the you know can't get to sleep at night or, or wake up and ruminate. Um, what you know what are, what are the simplest things that that people just don't think of doing that could immediately start making a difference? Sure. First thing is that we need to have a bedroom environment that is conducive to sleep. And that means that it needs to be cool, dark, quiet, and uncluttered. I will give a practical suggestion for each of those uh, four domains. Cool, the recommended temperature is between 60 and 68 degrees. 
Our bodies cool during sleep, and we uh, uh, can facilitate uh, deeper quality sleep by maintaining a cool bedroom environment. Sometimes uh, uh, those numbers make patients uh, wince or make people uh, wince in a, in a uh, public educational context like this one. And what I always encourage is suspend your disbelief and just test it. Test cooling the temperature in your bedroom. Light uh, is a cue. Let, sure. let, let me ask about that because, you know, we keep our bedroom cool, but we also have a whole variety of different blankets and comforters that we can use. And sometimes I'm like under four or five of them and I'm sweating. So it's not, it's, is it just the environment or if, if I'm at 60 to 68, should I just be sleeping under a light sheet or can I, you know, how, how does the insulation of, of, of linen affect anything? So uh, uh, my suggestion is uh, to keep the bedroom environment at those cooler temperatures and then make yourself comfortable. I don't think that you're hurting yourself sleeping under multiple blankets. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think that your body can do a much better job at, uh, at, at regulating uh, its temperature uh, uh, even while you're asleep if you have some of those, some of those options. Gotcha. Okay, great. So now let's know you said cool, 60 to 68. And then next, what's dark? That's right. Dark. Uh, Light is a cue for wakefulness. Light, particularly blue light, the kind of light emitted by uh, most electronic devices, is a very powerful melatonin suppressant. Uh, There was a study published from Harvard in the last year or two demonstrating very clearly that using e-readers delays sleep onset. Um, uh, Bedroom environment should be dark. Uh, Blackout shades are a great idea, but an even lower hanging fruit option is go buy Whole Foods or your local natural market or Amazon and buy yourself an eye mask. The bedroom environment should be dark. Okay. What's next? The bedroom environment should be quiet. And the reason for this is that different parts of the brain can be more or less awake or asleep. So that means that even if you are unaware of noise, ambient noise in the environment, that noise can be waking up the centers of the brain that respond to auditory cues. So uh, you can test earplugs. There are multiple different uh, flavors and styles of earplugs. Some will take some getting used to, and there's a great deal of individual preference. You can also uh, use a white noise generator uh, uh, which you can which you can buy at the drugstore or buy online, and uh, if you want to try the do-it-yourself option, you can even buy a very inexpensive bedside fan uh, and use the noise from the fan to drain out ambient noise. Gotcha. So when you say quiet, you don't mean literally absence of noise, but absence of the kind of intermittent noise that has some meaning for your brain and would would trigger some alert. I think that's a good question. I actually, uh, and there's no evidence-based answer. Um, What I would suggest, uh, the gold standard would be absence of noise, but that's probably not realistic. We live in houses. There's a, if if your windows are open in the summer, there might be an owl, or if the windows are closed in the winter, there might be a clunk of a furnace. Um, So, so absence, the possibility of, uh, of true silence, 
then what we want to do is make sure that uh, that there's as little variation in the ambient noise as possible. Gotcha. Um, and uh, the last one you said is uncluttered. That uh, that that, Un- that surprises me. I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have naturally put that on the list. Tell me about that. Mess makes stress. Uh, we want to be sensitive to the environmental cues, the physical environmental cues in our bedroom. Uh, uh, whether this is having a laptop nearby or having a dirty pile of clothes, uh, one of the very first things that I, I do uh, when patients uh, come to our integrated insomnia uh, uh, program uh, at the University of Memphis, we, uh, excuse me, at the University of Maryland, we have a team-based um, uh, integrated treatment center, one of the first things that we do is often we do a little bit of a bedroom overhaul. So there may be some uh, rearranging of furniture. Uh, there may be uh, some cleaning, some decluttering. This is, of course, in part symbolic to symbolize that change is coming, but it's also environmental to really uh, uh, create a, a sacred space uh, uh, for sleep and really that will be associated primarily with sleep and no longer associated with, uh, with wakefulness or with sleeplessness. Uh, one of the questions uh, that I often ask, uh, particularly with uh, uh, individuals who uh, go to church or synagogue or, or, or mosque, whatever the case may be, is, well, would you, would you be texting if you were in the chapel? And you shouldn't be doing that in your bedroom either. We want to create a, a, a sacred environment uh, for sleep so that there is a a conditioned cue, if you will, for a change in state just by being in that space. Mm. You, you, you go there and your brain goes, this is where I can let go. There, there is, uh, uh, that's exactly right. Think about the rituals of entering uh, religious uh, spaces, of, of entering uh, sacred spaces. Uh, there is a different uh, feel uh, when you walk into uh, an old uh, church, for example, than when you were standing outside uh, on the street talking about it. There is something different that happens, and you want to create the same kind of uh, uh, environmental impact in the bedroom. Great. All right, so that's... Uh that's the bedroom. And I can imagine we can have long, long conversations about negotiating with spouses around that, which I don't think we're going to have right now because we're running out of time. But tell, me, tell us a little bit about what you call your sort of pre-sleep rituals or routine, how you get from, you know, 60,000 or ideally, you know, normal flying altitude of 35,000 to how do you, how do you, how do we dusk ourselves so that we can be ready for sleep when it's time? we need to draw two lines in the sand. The first line in the sand is the end of our uh, working day, if you will. So for those uh, folks who uh, go and, and to a workplace, uh, I'm going to use just a kind of nine to five uh, uh, example because that's the most common. When you leave the workplace, there needs to be a marker to signify I am leaving work at home. Uh, if you uh, uh, go straight home, one of the first things that you should do is uh, change out of your work clothes. There needs to be a transition 
from the working day to the evening. So as many ways as you can uh, create uh, boundary, uh, create uh, symbolic steps to differentiate, I'm no longer checking email or I'm no longer uh, sitting in front of my desk. This is now a different time of the day. That's what you need to do. And be very clear about what you are leaving behind, leaving at work, for example. I just I just had the, the you know, Mr. Rogers put, taking off his jacket and putting on his cardigan. You know, it, it occurs to me that, um, you know, in the in the old days when, you know, people had to dress up for, in business attire for work and they couldn't go in in jeans, that, that, was, that was, we actually had that built-in signal. You'd come home and you'd take off your shoes, put on your slippers, take off your jacket, put on your, your house clothes. Um, but that's it's kind of been obliterated a little bit by our, our move towards more casualness. I, I, think that's, uh, uh, I think that's a great point. Uh, I think that's a great point. So we need to recreate some of that structure. Structure is generally uh, our friend, and ironically, structure uh, uh, generally enhances uh, creativity as well. Uh, so then you need to repeat. So uh, after the sort of uh, using the nine to five example, somewhere uh, after dinner, so let's say it's seven or eight o'clock, we need to draw another line in the sand. That may be the last email check of the day. That may be when you put the kids down to bed. That may be when you lay out your clothes for tomorrow. Um, But then we're now really into the pre-sleep buffer zone where we've gone from uh, 60,000 feet to 30,000 feet or from 30 to 20,000 uh, as, uh, as you prefer. And this is really going to be um, uh, a much more uh, protected time. We are now thoroughly in uh, uh, dusk and evening, and the sun is not going to pop back up to make sure that everything's okay. Mm. So I'm hearing a lot of my students and clients say, yeah, but. So I have a long commute. I have a long day. If you ask me what I do for fun, the answer is frigging nothing because all I have is my work and then coming home and cooking and cleaning and doing all my chores. And if I don't take those two hours, you know, between eight and 10 or nine and 11 to, to recreate, to, to do Facebook, to, to go on the computer, to, to play games, to play video games, to watch, binge watch Netflix, I will have nothing at all in my life except the daily grind. So I, I hear those kinds of questions, uh, uh, of course, also. And we don't want to dismiss those. I think we want to honor the fact that patients are trying to make uh, m- meaningful and oftentimes big uh, changes in their lives. In a situation like that, uh, when a patient is motivated but doesn't um, have a clear or when a uh, student or client is motivated but doesn't have a clear way forward, it actually becomes, things become much easier because the motivation is high. We just need to uh, uh, partner uh, with, our, with our students to map out a practical plan. For example, in the case that you just mentioned, the first thing I would ask is, well, what are you doing on the drive home? And if that is a high stress time, we're going to change that. So maybe there is a way that we draw a line in the sand before I even get in the car. Uh, That might mean changing my shirt or taking off my tie. It might mean washing my face as a symbolic gesture before I 
leave the office. Uh, it might mean coming up with another ritual to uh, signify to my brain that change is coming. Uh, if I'm listening to talk radio on the way home, which isn't relaxing for anyone that I've ever met anywhere, uh, maybe this now becomes um, a time when I listen to classical music or a novel on tape. Or So the, the strategy that I'm suggesting here is that if the motivation is high, uh, it becomes much easier to rearrange some of those pieces so that instead of getting home with my heart rate up from a stressful 60-minute commute, m maybe that commute can be part of the wind-down process itself. Mm. That's just a, a one example for how I would think about restructuring uh, that, um, uh, that individual. You also, of course, could look at things like, well, maybe there's a gym uh, uh, at the office, and I'll get a workout in before I commute home. The, the take-home here is that if the motivation is high, we want to create bite-sized steps. Uh, we want to create small steps that are going to move us uh, uh, in the right direction. Yeah. Um, so we've we've dealt with the behavior, you know, the uh, pre-sleep routine, what we do to to get ready for sleep. We've dealt with the environment, this the the sacred space for sleep. What do we do with the ruminations and the thoughts and the anxieties that pop up? There are two schools of thought, and uh, and I'll touch on each of those. Uh, uh, briefly, and then uh, perhaps on another call, uh, we can delve into this farther. It's an area that I'm increasingly interested in. The buzzword in uh, insomnia treatments is cognitive behavioral treatment, or what's called CBT for insomnia, which is uh, a highly effective, highly manualized um, behavioral intervention. When you say uh, the way that I what does that mean? It means that there are clearly uh, defined steps that have been developed uh, in, in rigorous research studies and evaluated over time where there are clearly defined components uh, and each of those components uh, has some relatively uh, firm and clear uh, steps. So what manualized means is that this treatment was developed and a manual was written how to do it so that others could learn how to do it. So I, you don't want to simplify and say it's a cookbook, but certainly critics would say, well, that's just a cookbook. Uh, in other words, there's a clearly defined uh, treatment progression. Gotcha. Now, <clears throat> uh, um, I have never, of uh, the various components of behavioral treatments for insomnia, uh, my personal preference is towards cognitive therapy uh, the least. Um, cognitive therapy uh, involves identifying uh, what we call automatic thoughts that lead to distress and looking at uh, antecedents and beliefs and consequences. Uh, uh, it, it's... Um, it's highly uh, effective, and it's a very specific way of doing things. And certain components of cognitive approaches I use all the time, but I tend to be much more practical with patients. And 
Another approach to managing uh, rumination involves um, mindfulness-based kinds of approaches. In other words, I can recognize that I'm having a thought, but I don't need to identify with that thought. Uh, uh, I can focus on what is and not what if is the mantra that, mm. that I share with patients. Um, increasingly, in my experience, the public is interested in mindfulness-based approaches. This is, of course, um, uh, it's, it's in the popular press and, uh, uh, and it's enjoyable and it also targets that hyper-arousal. So we use a hybrid approach that in, includes several cornerstone components of what are called cognitive therapy. But then with virtually all of my patients, uh, I also uh, incorporate mindfulness, guided imagery, relaxation, kinds of approaches to dampen down that hyper-arousal. Now, to be very practical, uh, because I want listeners to have uh, a concrete tool, the lower that the rumination is before sleep, the lower that the rumination will stay during sleep. So what that means is that doing things like creating a pre-sleep journal, uh, uh, creating a worry journal, creating a to-do list, um, working on getting all of those thoughts out of your head and onto the page a couple hours before bed, they're no longer bouncing around between your ears. So lower the rumination, the cognition, the active thinking before bed, before sleep, and, uh, and it will stay much lower during the night. Gotcha. So, so a, a way to capture all the stuff that would otherwise just sort of float around in our brain and, and some form of, of a mindfulness practice. Is there something that you recommend for people, you know, to go buy on iTunes or, or a, a page to read to themselves or, you know, like 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night? Is, is there like a starter kit for mindfulness? There, there are a number. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you those that I um, sort of endorse. At some point, of course, I'll, uh, I'll create uh, I'll create one uh, myself because uh, I do this uh, face-to-face with patients and, uh, and, and it works quite well. But in the absence of that uh, uh, recording, I ask if patients would prefer uh, a man or a woman's voice, and I have several. Uh, I play them samples so that they can... Uh, both begin to practice the exercise and also confirm that the voice doesn't sound like someone's fingernails uh, on a chalkboard. Uh, Different people, uh, uh, of course, have different uh, preferences. And I'll I'll share the the names, but I do want to offer the caveat that there are tens of thousands of what I'm sure are very high-quality mindfulness uh, experts. There are mindfulness teachers, there are mindfulness recordings, there are mindfulness uh, workshops. The grandfather of mindfulness meditation in, in the U.S. is John Kabat-Zinn, and I do uh, suggest his uh, 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 CDs and, and MP3s. They now sell CDs as, as apps, as as I'm sure you and your, your listeners know. Uh, I like uh, several recordings by Andrew Weil, uh, Dr. Weil. Um, uh, he has a series called Self-Healing that I think is quite good. Uh, and then when patients would prefer a woman's voice, uh, there's a, a woman in D.C., not far from me, whom I've never met, but I hear 
uh, very good things from from patients about her. Her name is Tara Brock. Uh, as I said, I don't know her, and I actually don't own any of her recordings. But when patients want a woman's voice, that's she's the uh, uh, person that I recommend, and uh, uh, and and patients give very good feedback. So, and there are others, and okay. and, I'll, and I'll and I'll put links to these in the show notes in case you're not sure how to spell this stuff. Yeah, sure, of course. And by you, I didn't mean you. I meant the listener doesn't know how to spell the names you just said. Of course, of course, of course. Great. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I hear you that there's hundreds of, of different programs, but the, you know, the thing is, when it's really useful to just tell someone, just go, you know, pick from one of these three so that the, you know, the paradox of, of choice paralysis doesn't set in. I think that's a, a fair point. And I also think that starting small is the key. So folks are better off uh, committing to 10 minutes a day. That's generally where I start, 10 to 20 minutes a day, and getting it done. Uh, you're not going to uh, become a, a Zen monk uh, in a day of practice. So what we're trying to do here is to build behavioral momentum uh, and just get the ball rolling. We're just going to run a behavioral experiment. We can figure out details related to uh, time of day and uh, uh, environment, down the road. In the beginning, we just want to get the ball rolling. Beautiful. Beautiful. So um, if folks want to find out more about you or stay in touch, is there a way for them to do that? You know, uh, uh, if folks, uh, uh, thanks for that. If folks uh, want to uh, find out, uh, if folks want to stay in touch, let's just have them do it through your podcast. And if there are questions, I'd encourage folks to send that to you send those to you and I'd be happy to hop on another call in the future. Great. So you can, uh, you can just go to the show notes for this episode. I'm not sure what the number is yet as I record it, but it will be, uh, I'll, I'll, you know, it'll be clear when I, when I do the intro and outro and you can certainly just go to plantyourself.com and do a search for the word Emerson, which is your first name. And they will find this in the previous episode and any other times that I, I may have mentioned you and, uh, they can, uh, Go, go to the comments and ask questions. And of course, anyone sounds great. Anyone listening to this who's a, a client or student of mine, um, you, we have lots of uh, of other ways for for connecting for you to post questions. And I appreciate Emerson your uh, your willingness to come back on because this is it, it feels really important. And it feels again like we scratched the surface. And and knowing of your long career and your your rabid curiosity about finding better and better ways to help people. There's an awful lot beyond, beyond the, the surface that we just scratched. So I want to I want to thank you for uh, for hanging out for this uh, for this hour plus and and for all the work you do. It's it's uh, my pleasure. Thanks again for having me. All right. Be well. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. There were no new reviews this week. That's sad. For more information about the Big Change Program, led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episodes with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 202. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 201 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast but not the weekly email newsletter, The Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and also get the Beat the Bully Report for free for another week and a half at plantyourself.com slash bully. Then that report disappears, goes away into the archives for another year. Thanks to the Plant Yourself podcast patrons. 
Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Dan- Jen Vilgen, ah. Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jenna Volkanovsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, and Jeanette Benham for your generous support of the podcast. And thanks also to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media and via email. You can write that review on iTunes and help break the uh, week-long drought. And what else can you do? You can uh, become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing over at plantyourself.com. Just find the links to donate on the right sidebar. Hey, if you're going to be in Health Fest in Marshall, Texas, the weekend of March 31st to April 2nd, I will be there too. Come say hello, introduce yourself, um, buy me a pretzel, I don't know. And uh, I'll be running in the uh, 10K, uh, or the Limpathon, as, as I'm going to call it, because in running news, I completed my marathon. And people are asking how I feel like I did, and the answer is great and terribly. So I went in there thinking I was going to try to go for a 345. You remember maybe when I started, I was trying to BQ Boston Qualify at 3.30. That was not going to happen. My training just wasn't leading there. So I was hoping for 345. So I ran hoping for a 345. But you know what? After two miles uphill, I felt so good and my pace was so good. I was like, ah, hell, let's go for 340. And I was ahead. They have these pace groups with these flags that they hold up and you can see where you are. And so I was ahead of the 345s, and I was catching up on the 340s, and at mile 19, it all fell apart. And the last three, the last six miles were, were like way slower, and the last three were just pathetically slow. I was just getting, you know, caught and passed by, by all sorts of people who were going pretty slow. And I ended up with a time of three hours, 50 minutes, and 36 seconds. Today is two days after the marathon, and I still am walking like a 100-year-old man. So uh, that will heal, I'm sure, and I'll be up uh, ready for the next one. And the next one, I'm going to have to start smarter and start out a little slower and see if I can maintain a tempo and stick to my race plan instead of getting all gung-ho at the very beginning. In garden news, we're still getting kale had some for lunch today, and we're hoping that the blueberries, or as we call them blue babies, will survive this crazy fluctuating weather. You know, like a couple weeks ago, they all flowered, and then we had the cold snap, and they're kind of hanging on. Today, it's 80 degrees again. So hopefully, we'll get some blueberries this summer. And that's it for this week. So as always, be well, my friends. <laughs>